General Director of the Church of God, has been in Jamaica since Sunday and has been speaking in the assembly here since very early Monday morning at different points. Tonight he will speak his sixth message in relation to speaking to a group, but he has also been involved in very deep conversation with different sections of the church and spoke at the new groundbreaking um, ceremony for the Olds Memorial Complex earlier this afternoon. Reverend Dr. Lyon does not want to be called Reverend Dr. Lyon anymore. He wants to be called Brother Jim. So, so we honor that. I get the feeling that he has become one of us and has found great favor based on the reports that I have received from some of our children and young people. They in particular like his scary stories. But Dr. Lyon has been involved in public life for a long time. He has been involved, he was involved at one point in representational politics. As he represented the Northwest Seattle as a member of the Washington State House of Representatives. And quite related to that, one of his early dreams was to become the president of the United States of America. I get the impression that that politics and that political desire may still be somewhere in his DNA, but repressed by the higher calling to Christian service. He is a quality servant of God, has been the speaker on the Church of God, Christian Broadcasting Hope, since 1996, and is the host of Viewpoint on that particular program. You should find him online sometimes and listen to him. Jim is also the author of one book, a book that resulted from a survey that asked respondents to indicate an important response. If you could ask anything at church, what would it be? And I suspect that 
a lot of Christians in the Church of God in Jamaica have questions that they would dare not ask at church. But Jim was daring enough to have a survey, to have had a survey on that particular issue. And out of that came his first book, Go Ahead, Ask Anything. When I first heard Dr. Lyon spoke, it was in Anderson. And one of the questions that was posed to him was what was the church's view on the issue of homosexuality? You know that that is a very topical issue in Jamaica. And in my own church, I attempted a series on human sexuality. And when I came to the end of the series and had spoken about homosexuality, at the end of the message, two sisters met me right at the podium and said to me, we are relieved, and they did not, they did not organize themselves to do it, we are relieved that you spoke about the subject like that today because we had some concerns. You don't get it. <laughs> but I told them not to worry. I believe the subject of human sexuality provides the church with a methodology for reading the Bible properly. And I believe the church can learn more and more by exploring the subject from a biblical point of view. When Jim fielded that question in the assembly in Anderson, I was very, very impressed with the way he handled the subject because he not only provided solid answers, he provided the foundational methodology for dealing with that question from a biblical point of view. I want to welcome him and thank him for leaving his wife in America for the brief time to join us and ask him that when he goes back he should bring the love of the Jamaican church to his wife and to their four sons. I want as I introduce him to wish him very well for his work as general director of the Church of God and wish him well too in the approach or approaches that he will engage in reaching the Church of God in the 84 countries around the world. We are delighted, Jim, to have you and look, listen, we'll listen eagerly to you when you speak this your final message to the Centennial Annual General Assembly. We know that as of now, you are going to be a main part of the history of the Church of God in Jamaica. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And now I'm going to call Miss Goss to come and sing to us. Reverend 
Jones, Reverend Jones didn't override me. <laughs> I am kind, no I don't know where she went, but that was fabulous. Let me just say, that was anointing. I don't know if you've heard of Bill and Gloria Gaither, but uh, they are some of the most successful songwriters of our time. I'm good friends with the Gaithers and have had many conversations with Bill and Gloria about music and its trends and its life in the church. And it's Bill's position that in every generation, there are certain songs that are written that will never pass away. And so 
There's a song like Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is going to transcend all time and taste and generations. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. It's going to live because there's something about it that has content and reaches deep into the heart. Every year, there are hundreds, yea, even thousands of songs written in worship that will not live past the moment. They may speak into the moment, but they won't live long. In the Church of God hymnal, there are hundreds of hymns that were powerful in a moment and a season, but they will not live until the Lord returns. But in the Church of God hymnal, there are some songs that will live until Jesus comes back. That's one of those. Consecration, like a child of God, like I am thine, O Lord. Those songs have content and depth that leap over oceans and cultures and languages and speak deep and rich into our hearts. And I just want to have to say thank you for your attention to this great legacy of music in the church and for allowing a young woman like that to take something already tried and tested and bring it to life in a fresh new way. The Lord is all over that. I owe you in a word of apology in that I feel somewhat not altogether properly dressed to be on the platform today, but I left my place of accommodation this morning thinking I'd be back there before tonight, but alas, so engaged by your general assembly meeting, I could not break away. So thankful to be a part of the groundbreaking at the Olson, Olson Memorial, and for all of the convention of the clock, I could not get back to be properly redressed. So you'll have to take me as I am. Thank you for your grace. I wish, as Adonaris reflected, I must leave tomorrow. I wish I could be here longer. Perhaps the Lord is protecting you from an extended stay, but before I received this invitation, long ago, I had made a commitment to speak to the General Assembly of the Church of God in the state of Missouri. And that meeting begins tomorrow night, and I have to fly to Memphis tomorrow, and then drive across the Mississippi River into Missouri to speak to the General Assembly there tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Pray that the planes run on time. And then I'll be there through the weekend until I get home at last for Sunday. But I have been so altogether blessed by being here. And as I mentioned to you last night, I already was aware that the Church of God in Jamaica had a reach far and beyond its shores. I had been a witness to that, and I knew there was something good here. I just had no idea how grand it was here. The Church of God here in Jamaica, what a powerhouse, what a dynamo, what great potential. The story of your establishment and life over the last 107 years, borne witness in this, the 100th meeting of the General Assembly, the work of the schools and the mission work that is on the island, the churches, the way in which you are looking forward. There is something about this place that bears the anointing of God. I want you to know that objectively from the outside. I don't just say that everywhere I go, and I've been a few places. Never take for granted what you have here. But never allow it to slip through your grasp because you're trying to hold it too closely. Because you must always be fresh and new as the Lord is leading you forward. But the platform and the stage and the foundation that is here laid is not rivaled anywhere else in the church of God in the world of which I know. 
and just be encouraged and be prayerful. And I hope to help you on that tonight one more time before I fly away. I have to say also, in response to something that Adnair said about my love for politics, when I was a child, I was not very good at anything I could think of. I could not qualify for the football team, and by that I mean American football. I was not coordinated enough to catch the ball and kick it and run it and so on, and I was not aggressive enough, it seemed, to tackle the players on the line. I could not qualify either for the soccer team, what you might call football. I couldn't do that either. I wasn't fast enough, and I wasn't good at basketball, and baseball was a complete dead-ender for me. When I looked at my life as a child, really, I, I was not good for much of anything. But there was something inside of me that wanted still to be significant. I think all of us have that. And I was deeply loved by my family and by my church, which always believed in me. And when I was in the ninth grade, I went to a school called Woodrow Wilson Junior High School. Woodrow Wilson was the president of the United States during World War I. A man ranked as one of the four most successful presidents in American history. He's not long remembered now these days, but when he walked on the face of the earth, he was absolutely the most powerful and influential voice of his time. And at Woodrow Wilson Junior High School, there was a big portrait of President Wilson in the hallway. I passed by it every day on my way to class. One day in the ninth grade, I don't know how it happened or just what the circumstance was, but I think I was wrestling with, what am I going to do when I grow up? I'm not good at anything. And so I think I was just asking the Lord about that, I suppose, or just wondering, but I had a dream. I truly did. I had a dream, a vivid dream that was very, very real, and I still remember it. And in the dream, I saw myself standing out in front of a crowd of thousands. I don't know how many were there, but there were just thousands of people, and I was standing on a platform, and I was speaking to them. And somehow in the dream, I knew that as I was speaking, I held them in my hand. They were listening to me. It was so powerful, and it was so altogether incongruous with who I was. I never spoke to more than two people at one time. I was very shy and backward. And so the dream was such a dramatic reach beyond anything that I had ever experienced or imagined. And because I went to Wilson High School, I think, and I read up all about Woodrow Wilson and loved history, Wilson, who spoke to thousands of people, when he arrived in Paris at the end of World War I to sign the Treaty of Versailles, the Paris newspaper said that Jesus Christ himself could not have received a more tumultuous welcome as he stood on the Champs-Élysées and spoke to thousands. And in my mind, in the church, there were only small churches. My church had 150 people in it. That was as large a crowd as I'd ever seen in a church meeting. And so in my mind, I thought, if this is a dream for me, it must mean that I'll be the president of the United States. That's the only thing I could imagine that would have a crowd like that. And, and I actually began to dream about that and to think about that. And I planned my educational career for that. And it seems also preposterous now, but honestly, as I, as I look back over the people who've been president since I was in the ninth grade, I honestly think I could have done as well as some of them did. Not that there haven't been some fine men there, but, well, one thing led to another, and I pursued a political career, and I loved it, and I was in the legislature, and I had a house seat. I sat on the House equivalent of Parliament, and I represented 74,000 people in my home city of Seattle. But then a turn came, and through a train of events, I found myself being asked if I'd be the pastor of my local church. 
and I accepted that call. A few years later, in 1990, I was invited to Anderson, Indiana. I'd never been there before. My family was in the Church of God for five generations, but on the West Coast, it's a long ways from Anderson. Nobody from my church went to Anderson. I never went. I was a pastor of a leading church in the area, but I never went to Anderson. But I was invited to speak. In those days, there was still the great dome some of you may have seen or remembered. In that dome, you could seat at any one time 8,500 people. And there was a day when people poured into Anderson and every seat would be taken. And then around the dome, a few thousand more would sit outside. And I was invited to speak at the keynote address of the Anderson Convention in 1990. I'd never been there before, knew nothing of what to expect. I got there. I can tell you what I preached from Acts chapter 26. The Apostle Paul saying, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. As I stood on the platform speaking, I had the most unusual experience with God. I was speaking and, and reciting my points and, and moving through the story. And then I had a word from God. I don't know if this ever happened to you before, but while I was speaking to an audience, I also was having a conversation vertically with God himself. I don't know how that works. I don't know how I could keep speaking and also speaking here in a completely separate conversation, but that's what happened. And I was standing in front of the crowd, and the Lord spoke to me as I was continuing to speak about the Apostle Paul's vision. He said to me, Jim, what do you see? And I said, well, I see a crowd. He said, no, what do you see? I said, I see people. They're listening to me. He said, what do you see and suddenly I realized it's the dream it was exactly what I'd seen in the ninth grade it was exactly what I had seen I said Lord it's what you showed me when I was 14 at Wilson Middle School at the junior high school that's what I see and he said to me today is that vision fulfilled and I'm telling you that story to say that from that moment I understood in a way that I had not before God did not destine me to become the president of the United States. He had other things for me. Public service is a high and noble calling. I would pray that there would be people in the church of God on this island that would sense a call to public service, to be in the government, for great good can be done there as in any calling. But for me, he's called me to preach from the scripture. And so I do. Tonight, once more. I'd like to share with you some words from the Word. But before I do that, one last introductory marker. I have been very honored to come and speak here to you on this historic occasion in the church's life in Jamaica. I have been very impressed by the people I've met, by your warm welcome, by the expanse of the work, and the promise of potential of the work. I want to also invite you and I think you know this, but I want to say it out loud as I speak now as the General Director for Church of God Ministries in the United States and Canada, and also with a charge to network the church in 86 countries, 84 plus the United States and Canada. I want you to know you're always welcome at the convention in the United States. And many of you have attended that convention before. This year, as some of you know, it will not be in Anderson for the first time in 108 years. It will not be in Anderson, Indiana. Why? 
I've had several people ask, and so I'm going to respond uh, in mass tonight. I live in Anderson. I've been there for 23 years. It's my home. Though I still have a big part of me that's in Seattle, far out on the West Coast, where my family still lives, my extended family. Anderson has changed a great deal in the last quarter century. The economy has been very challenged. General Motors, which was the primary employer, has moved away. Where once Anderson was a city that was its own freestanding community with its own economy, that is no more. Anderson is today principally a place where people who live and work in Indianapolis live. It's what we call a bedroom community, where people have their houses and send their children to school, but they drive down the interstate highway to Indianapolis 26 miles every day. That's where they work, because there are not many jobs in Anderson. And because the economy's changed so much, Anderson's changed. There aren't so many restaurants anymore, and there aren't so many hotel and motel rooms anymore. In fact, the two largest motels in Anderson and hotels, the Holiday Inn and the Days Inn, the two largest establishments for lodging since the convention in June of last year have been sold and torn down and will not be replaced. There are less than 200 hotel rooms within 20 miles of the campus of Anderson University. Last year, only 40 campsites were let out, where it used to be that hundreds and thousands of people would camp on the grounds of the campus that is no longer true. Less than 100 Americans and Canadians have stayed in the dorms every year at the convention for the last 10 years. Kids Place, which used to have 1,000 children last year, had 111 children. Half of those children were the children of the volunteers who worked it. And it was 40 children less than the year before, which was 100 children less than the year before. Why, you might say, what's happened to the convention? Well, many things have happened. First, the church has changed. It's redistributed. In 1990, when I spoke at the convention and thousands were there, well, the church was still largely congregated around the Great Lakes stakes around Indiana, but it's widely dispersed now. Where's the largest Church of God congregation in the world? Does anyone know? Where is it? In the whole world, where's the largest Church of God congregation? I'll give you a clue. It's in the United States. It's in Boston. Who would guess? In Boston, we have a congregation that has over 7,000 people in worship every Sunday. The worship team from that church, it's called Jubilee Church, Gideon Thomas is the pastor. The worship team called Ashmont Hill that leads worship at our largest church has never been to Anderson. No one from the church has ever been to Anderson. They live in Boston. But their worship team is coming to lead worship at the convention this year. 25% of every member of the Church of God in the United States of Canada, one quarter of the whole Church of God, is in just 30 churches, the 30 largest churches. Let me say that again. We have 2,088 congregations this year in the Church of God in the United States of Canada, and in just 30 of those is 25% of the whole Church of God. This reflects the increasing urbanization of the United States, as people move from rural communities, where many of our churches are, into the cities, and reflects a development in the United States of what we call megachurches, where larger churches attract more and more people. 50% of the whole church is in just 200 churches. The 200 largest churches have 50% of the whole movement. That means the other 50% are in 1,900 other churches. Eight of the largest churches are in the Great Lakes area, 
where Anderson is. But 12 of the largest churches are on the west coast of the United States. How long does it take to get in your car and drive from the west coast to Anderson? My home in Seattle is 2,500 miles away. It takes five days and four nights. And that's today with the modern superhighways and driving hard through. I made that drive once. How easy is it to get to Anderson if you can't drive there? Well, you'd fly to Indianapolis. How far is the airport from Anderson? It's 65 miles one way. That means it's a 130-mile round trip. And that means you have to find transportation to get from there to there. Well, take the train. You can't. There is no longer any train service to Anderson as there once was. Well, why don't you just get on a bus? You can't. There's no commercial bus service that will take you there. What I'm explaining is Anderson, for all of its rich history and legacy, is not able anymore to accommodate the meeting. And we have 5,684 ordained clergy of the Church of God in the United States eligible to vote in the General Assembly. We have another 6,000 lay delegates who are eligible to vote in the General Assembly. 11,182 altogether who can vote. How can you have a meeting in a place where there are less than 200 hotel rooms that you can't fly to, you can't take the train to, and you can't take a bus to, and where most of the church lives thousands of miles away. That's our problem, and that's our challenge. Let me say one other thing. Because of the way the city has changed, we do not have a venue anymore since the dome has been torn down. There's no venue in Anderson for a mass meeting. That means we have to take over a space, as we did last year at Anderson University, and rent chairs, and rent sound, and lights, and stage, and all of that we have to rent. Last year at the Global Gathering, the Church of God Ministries had a net loss of $97,500. That's almost $100,000 U.S. If my math is correct, that's a little bit close to 1 million Jamaican dollars. That's how much it costs to have the meeting there. After everything else, after all the offerings and all the comments, everything, it's still lost $100,000. That's $100,000 that's not being sent to help build the Olsen Chapel or that's not going to Kenya or somewhere else. Our second largest church in the world, it's in Oklahoma City. It's called The Crossings, and under a single roof at the Church of God in Oklahoma City, in that one congregation, under a single roof, we can seat 6,000. 6,000 seats under one roof. And the church is allowing us to use it for free. And for free, we have lights and sound. We don't have to have any investment in renting chairs or any of the rest. There's an airport in Oklahoma City was just minutes away from the church. And there are 3,000 hotel rooms right within five miles of the meeting place. So you can see some of the math and some of the rationale. It's a huge step. And we do not take it lightly because there is value to tradition. But the church of God cannot live by honoring its tradition at the expense of allowing its members to be a part of the family. And that's, in fact, what has happened over time. I don't know how it's going to work out. And at this General Assembly, just one year after I was chosen last June, it's possible that the General Assembly will rise up and boot me out and say, what have you done? 
I hope that maybe if that occurs, you might receive me here, if there's a little corner where I could be. On the other hand, it's a new day in the church of God. The truth has not changed. We're still going to sing consecration. The truth will be proclaimed, and thousands of people from all over the country, indeed the world, are coming to convene there. And we pray the Lord's blessing on it. We want you to know you are welcome. Now, one more thing. You might say, well, I used to always go to Anderson, and I knew people there. I could stay as a guest in their home. And the prospect of going to Oklahoma City, and actually the airfare to Oklahoma City is no more and sometimes less than Indianapolis. If I go there, where would I stay? And I don't know if I could afford the cost of all that. I want you to know, if you just go to our website, chogconvention.org, C-O-G, chogconvention.org, there's a place there where you can say, I'd like to be a guest in someone's home because the churches of Oklahoma City, of which there are a great number, have offered to open their homes to anyone without cost who wants to come and stay. So if you just get there, they'll put you up in their houses, they'll give you breakfast, they'll drive you to the meeting, and they'll bring you home again. And you won't have to worry about anything except the cost, which makes it less expensive than going to Anderson, I promise. So just go to chogconvention.org, and there you'll see how to register and how to say, I'd like to stay as a guest in someone's home. Last thing I'll tell you, what city in the United States has more Church of God people, gives more money to the Church of God, and has the most value in real assets as measured by the value of its properties and churches in the city? What city is that? Can you guess? It's Portland, Oregon. What? Well, in Portland, Oregon, we have a college, Warner Pacific College, which is a booming institution, one of the leading and fastest-growing schools of its kind, a four-year fully accredited liberal arts college in Portland, and it's on prime property. Our largest supporting church, the church that sends more money to Church of God ministry around the world, is in the Portland metro. And there are another 20 churches there in the Portland metro. I'm just illustrating how the church has changed very few people would think that Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the United States, was the city with the greatest concentration of Church of God people and assets in the country. This year that might change up, though, because Oklahoma City is not far behind. And if those Oklahoma City churches are all excited about us being there and they start writing checks, they'll overtake Portland. Let's pray for that. I want to welcome you to Oklahoma City. If you go to the website, chalkconvention.org, you'll also see a little video there. And that video is four minutes long, and I hope you'll take a minute and look at it, and you'll see some of the great preachers and musicians that are coming in line to be at this convention. I've been in dialogue with each of them over the last two weeks personally, one-to-one, -one, and all I can say is, wow. Well, if some of the greatest teachers in the church, like Diana Swoop and Marty Grubbs, will be preaching at this convention. Michael Thigpen will give a history of the Church of God in a phenomenal rap telling of the story. We also have Anne Graham Lotz. Maybe you've heard of her father, Billy Graham. And Anne Graham Lotz is going to speak about heaven, and in speaking with her last week, her father is bright and alert, but she knows he's close to heaven's gate. And her own husband is in very poor health. And this woman, who I've been told is one of the greatest Bible teachers of our time, and I've been listening to her, I promise you, she is amazing. She says to me, all I can think about is heaven. You won't want to hear what she has to say about it at Oklahoma City. And David Stone is a great preacher of one of the largest churches in the United States, an independent Christian church. 
you won't want to miss what he has to say. And Reggie McNeil, so we're going to have a blend of Church of God great teachers and preachers together with some of the finest teachers across the whole of the Christian world. And they're all coming, pulling for the Church of God to go forward and advance the kingdom. Sandy Patty will lead worship with Anne Graham Lotz. You won't want to miss it. And the Sidewalk Prophets, go online and check them out. The number one gospel group in the world today as measured by iTunes and the charts of Billboard, a Church of God collection of graduates from Anderson University who named their group Sidewalk Prophets after the sidewalk in the valley of the Anderson University campus. They'll be there, as will Ashmount Hill from our largest church in Boston. I could go on and on. You're welcome always. Oh, but what, you can't come this year. What about 2015? Stay tuned. <laughs> Maybe Madison Square Garden. Why not, Laura? Let's take it over. Well, enough of all that introductory. I, I didn't mean to divert. Jesus is the subject, not our convention. Acts, chapter 16. Beginning with verse 6, the New Living Translation. As I read this, remember, Jesus is the subject even as the tale is about the Apostle Paul. This is the word of God. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a dream of a man in northern Greece who was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and there we stayed for several days. Our Father, at the reading of the word once more, I pause for a moment in prayer and ask that your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit resident in this story, that Spirit, I pray, will speak to all of us tonight in powerful ways. May all of us, Lord, be stretched and challenged beyond our comfort zones, but may we also, Lord, be reassured and encouraged that you are right by our side. I pray that the Church of God represented here in Jamaica and each of us as individuals might draw closer into your will and way for having been under the teaching of your word here now. And I pray once more with confidence, not because I deserve to be heard, but because I come before you in the single and sacred name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When I was 12 years old and in the seventh grade, I went to a youth convention. I don't remember much about it, except it was a big adventure for me because it was the first time I can recall going away from home for any extended period without my family. I was in the seventh grade. I, I was at a threshold. I was just at the the cusp of puberty. I was 12 years old. And I was going on the adventure of a lifetime. I was going with some of my friends from our local church youth group, and we were going to go to a youth convention that was being conducted at another church of God in another city. It was a very big adventure indeed. 
What I do remember, though, was something happened I did not in any way expect. While I was at the convention, there was a preacher who I cannot see. I cannot see his face, but I know it was a man. And I can see the center aisle, the long aisle of that church meeting house. And I can see the, the pews on either side, and I can see the red carpet that went down the middle. And that man was preaching about hell. It was very dramatic. He painted a picture that was the stuff of digital photography. And the dare was given. No, the invitation was given. The only way you are not going to end up there is to surrender into the arms of Jesus. What I remember is I didn't want to go there. I wasn't sorting out all of life. I wasn't making decisions about how I was going to be a young man or what I would do. I hadn't approached the idea of being president yet. I was just a 12-year-old boy, but I knew I didn't want to go to hell. But I was very shy, remember? And as people began to get up out of their seats and pour towards the front, I was paralyzed. I can't do it. I can't do it. But then I couldn't escape the calling, that inner tug of my heart. And finally, I just surrendered, and I... I took a deep breath and closed my eyes and stepped out into the aisle and started to walk forward. But by that time, there had been such an outpouring of response that the whole front was filled and kids were kneeling in the aisle all the way back. So I only had to go down three pews and kneel right there in the middle of the aisle, in the middle of the room. And I gave my heart to Jesus. It was real. It was definitive. And, and some other man, I don't know, some chaperone from the convention came up and prayed with me. And this is what I remember him saying. He said, now that you've made this decision, you must go home and tell your pastor and be baptized. And so I did. I went home. I don't know why I knew this or if someone told me, but I knew I had to start reading the Bible every day. I went home and that very next day, I got out a Bible and I started reading it every day. I am just weeks away from my 62nd birthday, and I want you to know, I read the Bible every day. I do it every day. And I used to read it always in the morning. Now I read it at night. Sometimes I read it morning and night. But I'm just telling you, I, I somehow intuitively knew that I had, to, I had to start reading the Bible every day. And then I went to my pastor and I said, oh, oh. if I was in Jamaica, I might have said, Hey, Mon, I, I gave my heart to Jesus. And that pastor put his arms around me, and he said, let's get you baptized. And so just a few weeks after, just days passed, my life was beginning to change. It wasn't that I was such a bad boy. It's just that suddenly I was experiencing some disciplines and, and interactions and so it came on a Sunday night when I was baptized. I invited my three closest friends from school. They were not in the church. One was a Jewish boy named Julian. Another, an Anglican, Episcopalian named Bob Lucas. And another boy whose family didn't go to church at all, John Primrose. I remember it so vividly. I wanted them to come and see. And they all came and sat down in the row. And then the pastor came out into the pool, which was up above the stage, and, and he... Um, baptized me, and I remember being so concerned about how my hair would look. You know, when you're in the seventh grade, and in those days it was a time when boys wore long hair, and mine was going to look like a dish mop, and I was all concerned of what people would think and say, but I did it. 
And I got up out of the water and went down. There was a little side room down here. You kind of went off and there was a side room and that was the changing room. And I'm sure the pastor will never forget the moment either because I was so so glad to have it done and I was so excited to be through it and, and the sense of obedience and so on that I just quickly changed my clothes and ran out and there was a door that was just down there on the floor that I just left ajar as the pastor was in there changing clothes and all the people in this section were staring at him. I remember him calling out, Hey! <laughs> I was gone. That night, the youth group had a kind of cookout under the trees, tall fir trees. It was in May. And they were roasting marshmallows or something over here by a fire. And I was just kind of thinking about all that had happened. And I, I was standing under that big, tall fir tree, evergreen tree. It was a beautiful, clear night. And I remember looking up and seeing the stars. And it was a warm evening. And I just, I just felt so good about myself at the moment. And then, as I was standing under that tree, there was like a blanket from heaven that fell down upon me. It came across me and just encircled me and, and just held me. I, I can't even articulate, and I am a wordsmith. If I can do anything, I can talk. But I'm still speechless when I try to describe the sense of completeness and wholeness and unconditional love and acceptance and life I felt, it was so real. It was so memorable. Remember, I was then 12. I'm now just 62. That's 50 years on. I'm still startled to think that I can relive it and I can call it back. It's so real. I didn't fully understand it then, but I soon learned and know now. I was possessed by the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. That's what happened. Do you know if you read the scripture, you'll see that, that this act of baptism is often connected to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Acts of the Apostles, the great apostles of old told those who would listen, be baptized and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to pause here just to say it's amazing across the movement, and I've been in 50 countries all across the Church of God, how baptism has somehow kind of fallen into the background. Like it's, it's the also-ran in the Christian journey, the, the elective that somehow is accessed when we prove ourselves to be holy or, or when we make time for it or it doesn't really matter. We're not saved by these rites and rituals. Therefore, it's not that important. I'm here to tell you that baptism is the command of Christ. And baptism is the signal way by which the New Testament encourages us to declare our newfound, not our ancient, but our newfound faith in Christ. You know, you can't be baptized alone. Somebody has to be a witness. Philip appears to the Ethiopian eunuch on the road home to Ethiopia, and he says, I want to be saved. Can I be saved right here? Yes, let's get baptized right here. The chariot stops. It's Philip and the eunuch, so far as we know, but Philip was a witness. I just want to encourage all the churches in Jamaica, every pastor here, if a person makes a commitment to Jesus, help them to know they need to be baptized and speed them on their way to that complete surrender that leads to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the devil himself, I promise you, will not be nearly as worked up when you come forward to a kneeling bench and pray as he will when you're baptized. 
because hell knows what heaven knows that baptism is your marriage ceremony with Jesus. It's where all the witnesses line up and you take your vow and you say, I am married. It doesn't make you married, but you bear witness to the intention of your heart. Jesus is now my Lord. I am his. And when you're baptized, and if you go to parts of the world where Christianity is in the minority, baptism is always the event that triggers opposition. It's when people lose contact with their families or where there are all kinds of provocations in a village because everyone who's unbelieving knows that when you're baptized, you're telling the tale of your redemption. We need to own that. I'm giving you my experience. You're thinking, well, what about the Bible that you just read? Because in this story, Paul is walking in the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is something we deeply hold in the church of God. It's not just the also ran in some kind of law office like Johnson, Smith, and Jones, Father, Son, and oh yeah, Holy Ghost. No, the Holy Ghost is that part of our triune God that convicts us of sin, that seals us with redemption, that empowers us with supernatural gifts that otherwise could not be known that also holds us, and as Jesus tells us, will remind us of his words. You see, the Spirit is always bringing us back to Jesus. Did you notice in the text that Paul acknowledges that we wanted to go here, but the Holy Spirit prevented us? So then we decided over there, but the Spirit of Jesus prevented us. Are those two different spirits? No. They're the same and one spirit, but the Holy Spirit is always going to remind you of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always going to help you make Jesus the subject. The spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of God. And that spirit is real. And our experience with that spirit is an important part of our journey in helping redeem and change the world. Notice in the story that Paul this man who had his own experience with the Holy Spirit, that Paul, as he was walking through life, knew God. He was absolutely committed to the gospel. He, he lived for Jesus. Is there anyone that would argue, well, Paul's commitment was wavering? Is there no price that he would not pay? Is there no thing he would not do? Does he not possess the kind of commitment and zeal that all of us long at some point to possess, and yet even so, he's in error. How so? Because he wants to go to a different part of Asia Minor than God wants him to go to. He wants to go over here. This would be modern-day Turkey. He has his mind set by all human measure, by all calculation, by all the counsel of the church. He's to go over here. But the Lord, in some mysterious way, closed the doors, and he could not go. So then he thinks, well, what else will I do? But the Lord closed those doors that were his second plan. And then he has a dream. When you walk with the Holy Spirit, I think anyone who has been on this journey would understand that you are willing to go wherever the Lord wants you to go and do whatever he asks. But sometimes you'll wait for the signal to go. Sometimes you just have to pause and wait for him to disclose in his time what you want to do. The burden of proof, in my view, is always on change, as someone who went to law school. In other words, if you want to argue for change, the proof and the evidence must argue for change against the status quo. 
If you're not sure what to do, stand still and see what the Lord will call you to do. Paul decided to go to Troas, hard and fast against the Aegean Sea, as he was there. And I was just in Troas not so long ago. And in Troas, you could still stand on the beach where he stood, and the ancient Roman pier that was the one in place when he was there. You can go right there, and you can stand. And in the ancient ruins of that place, you can hear the water, the tide rise up and pull back. It's not a roaring ocean, as you might find in some other parts of the world. It's a gentle tide. And you can stand and hear the waves recede. And as they do, the tumble, the stones, and the pebbles of the beach, and the sound of it is mesmerizing. And as he was there in Troas, falling asleep perhaps, listening to the sea turn and turn the pebbles again and again, he sees the vision of a man dressed in Macedonian clothes. Come. Come. Jesus said to the disciples one day, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Come to Macedonia. Come and help us. But I don't want to go to Macedonia. I've never been to Macedonia. I have no intention of going to Macedonia. I, that's not a part of anything in my plan. Folks, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit to understand the vision of God. But when you are, the stuff of dreams and visions comes to life. You can see things that are not yet. You can understand the power of God in ways you wouldn't before. And you can understand your own destiny and trajectory. When Jesus said to the disciples, as I described last night, let's go to the other side of the lake, I hope that you will remember this. He always knows where he's going. You may not know where the boat is going, but he knows. When he called Paul to go to Macedonia, Paul could not have understood what was to be. He didn't know about the banya that he was going to visit over there. But Jesus knew exactly. And so he and his companion set sail, just like the disciples in Galilee so many years before. They got in the boat and they started out. They went to Samothrace and then to Neapolis and then to Philippi a Roman colony, a great and important city. In the late 19th century, there was born in Iowa to a family of strong Scots Presbyterians, a little girl they named Faith. As she grew up, she loved her family and they loved her and she loved the Lord. As she became a teenager at the age of 16, reading her Bible, she decided that she wanted to bear witness to her faith in Jesus by being baptized. But she'd been already baptized as an infant in the Presbyterian church. And her Presbyterian pastor would not re-baptize her. The rebaptizers, the Anabaptists, that's the movement of which we are a part. And, and so the Presbyterian pastor would not rebaptize her, and she was very, very strong. Even at this young age, she had a certain strength of character. And so she just decided she was going to get baptized, and she would go knock on church doors until someone would do it. And she found a Baptist pastor who said, we're all about that. And the Baptist minister baptized her. Her family was just a little bit askew about this because... For them, it was a challenge to their own faith. Don't you believe that we love Jesus? Don't you think that the church has raised you up is adequate? And she said, well, I love that, but, but I wanted to be baptized. That's what it says right here. Later, as she was growing in her faith and walked with Jesus and came to the age of 18 and just about 19, 
Some preachers came to town. They were from the Church of God. They talked about a church where you didn't sign up to be a member, where Jesus was the subject about the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life and to transform the world in which you walk. She listened to the teaching. She ran forward to hear more and went to the meetings, and at last she decided, this is for me. As a young woman then, now 20, she came into the church of God. She was engaged to be married to a fine, outstanding Methodist young man. He loved the Lord too, and she loved him deeply. But when marriage approached, he wanted her to sign a membership card with the, mem with the Methodist church. And on principle, she said, I won't sign that. Can't I just be a part of it? Do I have to sign the paper? He said, well, no, of course you have to sign the paper. That's the way we do things. And by her own testimony, she said, I had to walk away sorrowfully from the only man I would ever love because I could not betray the truth that I had received about one church of God. This broke her heart. Her family was also quite perplexed and disturbed, and her father, though a good man, could not understand the journey her, his daughter Faith had taken. And in a terrible moment, in his own frustration, anger, disappointment about all the things that happened, the, the young man that they all loved and thought would be their son-in-law had walked away, and, and she was giving away so much of her life for this, for this crazy group of Church of God people. And so her father said to her, Faith, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to choose between that church group you're in or your family. But if you don't choose to leave those group of people that I consider to be fanatics, you are not welcome to live any longer in our house. And she said, it was there that I found Jesus. I cannot walk away from him. And the door to her family home was closed. Think of it, the early 1900s now, a single woman. She goes to Denver and works in the Church of God. And while she's there, she falls ill with tuberculosis, then the scourge of the ages. She's near death, and the Church of God family surrounded her and prayed her well. And she stood up in amazement. She moved on to Los Angeles, her body still bearing the mark of some frailty, for she would always be a person who had physical struggles. But she went to Los Angeles and began working in the church there and working as a domestic in the home of a wealthy family in Beverly Hills. At the age of 23, in 1904, uh, she sat on the beach of Los Angeles, the Pacific Ocean, one night. And she said, Lord, what am I to do? I thought I was to stay in Denver, but the door was closed there. Now I'm in Los Angeles, and the door here seems to be closing my opportunities, and, and just something isn't right. I'm not supposed to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what I should be doing. And as she prayed and listened to the wave of the sea rush in and rush out, again rushing in and rushing out, she looked up into a clear night sky. She saw the stars, and again, by her own testimony, she said, Suddenly, every star turned to become the face of a child, a child with arms outstretched to me. I was very troubled, she write, about what this meant, and I cried out to the Lord on that beach, what does it mean? What does it mean? 
And she said, the Lord spoke to her and said, these are the children of India. I have made you to rescue them. She was so transformed by this that she got up and immediately began to make a way to go to India, but there was no way. She believed God was calling her to go to India, a place that she had never imagined going before. It was far, far away. It was a different world. How could I go? She wrote a letter back to the church fathers of the Church of God, not yet in Anderson. They didn't come there till 1906. This is 1904. She's writing to West Virginia and to Michigan, where the Church of God and the Gospel Trumpet Company were then moving about. They wrote back and said, there's no way that we're going to send you a single woman, a white woman, and a sick woman to India. It just cannot be. Whatever dream or vision you think you've had, it must be a mistake. But she would not give it up. She paid a price already too high to turn back now. The storm was raging, but she would not surrender. And she continued working and getting odd jobs in Los Angeles, being faithful to the church, every year writing back by 1906 to Anderson. The missionary board was being formed. She's writing them letters. God has called me to go to India and rescue children. God has called me to go to India and rescue children. Every year they sent back a letter. We're not sending you a single woman, a white woman, and a sickly woman to India. It just won't happen. Culturally, it can't be. India is a dark continent. Single women won't be safe there. People who are sick, we can't take you there. We'll be too responsible. And then, after nine years passed, she gets to be the age of 34. It's 1913, and she gets a letter from Anderson that says, there's a brother in India named Adi Khan. If you know that name, it's because Adi Khan was one of the early Church of God missionaries that came to Jamaica. And Adi Khan was an Indian man who had come to Anderson and learned about the teaching and gone back to his home place of India in time. And in 1913, Faith Stewart in Los Angeles gets a letter from Anderson that says, a man in India named Adi Khan has sent a letter asking if there's anyone we could send who would help rescue children who are being sucked into the dark sex traffic. We're thinking maybe that's you. She packed her bags, got on a train, went to Anderson. In Anderson, they told her, we don't have any money for you. There's no wage. There's no support. But we have a boat ticket if you want to take it. She got on that train in Anderson, took those tickets, went to New York, worked with the Church of God at the very end of Manhattan. There they packed her suitcase. She had nothing. They packed her suitcases with clothes and things that she could take to India. She got on the boat and went to Liverpool. There she got off and was greeted by the Birkenhead Church of God, still there. She worked in that church for three months, and the British believers at Birkenhead helped further stock her suitcase and make sure that it was full and that she'd have everything she'd needed. Finally, she got on the boat in Liverpool and began to sail around the Cape of Good Hope all the way around India to get to Calcutta. As they get around the bottom of the Cape of Good Hope, there is a huge and furious, fierce storm that overtakes this passenger liner. The boat is taking on water. The passengers are ordered into the life rafts. She described a terrifying scream of women and children and men crying out for their souls and how she stood in the lifeboat and witnessed to them about the saving love of Jesus and prayed that the storm would be stilled, and so it was, and they all got back on the boat. She tells the very interesting story about how as the boat settled and the sky cleared that the captain came on and made all the women get on one side of the boat and all the men on the other side. 
and drew a line down the boat so the two genders could not mix, so they could do their laundry and hang out their undergarments so that none of the men could see what the women wore, and vice versa. And so they sailed around, but the boat so damaged couldn't make it to Calcutta. It had to stop at what was then called Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. And as the boat was patched up there, then they finally at last made it to Calcutta. She left New York City in September 1913 and did not arrive in Calcutta until February 1914. And there was a young woman there, the wife of a Church of God Indian pastor who met her, put her on a train, and took her to Katak, where Adi Khan lived. And when she got there, her eyes were opened to the terrible scourge of human trafficking. It was so far away from Iowa. It was so far away from Denver. It was so far away even from Los Angeles in those days. Hindu temple prostitution where children were sold to the priests and they would be dedicated as sexual objects for the use of the Hindu priests for their whole lifetimes. And when they became too old to be attractive sexually to the priests, they would be forced to become the matrons for the new crop of young girls that were being sold into the temple. The brothels of the public sector, which have always been a terrible dark blot on humanity, flourished in India then as now. Children and young girls who are always depreciated in India were swept up and vacuumed up and sold into the slave trade. Katak, which was then the British colonial capital of that region, was a feeding ground for the brothels in Calcutta, which was then the British imperial capital before they built New Delhi. And the children of Calcutta, of Katak, were always prey, the little girls were always prey to slave traders that would come in, throw down some rupees, seize a child, just abduct them or pay their parents and take them by horse-drawn cart or throw them on a train to the terrible brothels and temple prostitution of Calcutta named for the worship of the goddess Kali, the Hindu goddess of destruction. So appalled that one day she ran up and just grabbed a girl who was being taken. Her name was Rangbati. She had been sold by her mother for $2.50 and a piece of cloth. And on September 1st, 1914, Faith Stewart opened what she called the shelter. The shelter in Katak, India, began to go and rescue children. She would actually stare down slave traders, conglomerates of criminal elements, and she would stand in the street and dare them to pass her by. She intervened as the children were being taken from Katak to Calcutta. But then she wrote, I was not satisfied knowing that even as I was interrupting the trade, there were still children locked in these dens of vice. So then she went to the British government, which was sympathetic to her plea, and they gave her a license. They called her a police inspectress. And she would take the water commissioner of the British colonial government and go to brothels and, uh, and temples, and the water inspector would ask the person who owned the place to go show them all the pipes, and while... The proprietor of the brothel, let's say, was looking at the pipes. Faye Stewart would grab all the little girls she could find. And when we talk about girls, we're talking about girls aged 5 to 13. She would gather them up and have a waiting coach outside, run out the doors while the water inspector kept the people busy, pull the shades down, and gallop off. It's the stuff of movies and films. She risked her life. She risked everything. She, remember, was a single white woman sickly 
And she stared down the gates of hell until at last she had 140 girls rescued in this place called the shelter. The story was told in the United States and funds were sent and a building was built and then a training center for the girls. And then she realized that these girls were going to grow up and become young women and what would she do next? They'd have to get married, but who to marry? So she decided to open a home for boys so she could raise up some boys to marry those girls. She began to wear a sari like the locals did and to the shock of the Western Church of God missionaries who came in all their Western regalia and wanted her to put on a dress and make those girls put on a dress. She said, I'm not doing that. We're in India. These are Indian girls. And her work and passion in rescuing was unabated for the 15 years she would live there until at last she was called home. And after a brief stint in Anderson, pastoring in Indianapolis, she received a call to Cuba and went to Cuba and did the same thing. I met a sister right here. When I found out she was from Cuba, she told me today in her story, I said, have you ever heard of Faye Stewart? She goes, have I heard of Faye Stewart? I was named after Faye Stewart. I said, what? Faye Stewart and this sister's mother were friends. Faye Stewart, I'm describing to you, is a Church of God woman who changed the world, filled by the Holy Spirit and willing to have a vision to cross to Macedonia. The Apostle Paul went and went to Macedonia to Philippi where he would preach boldly and he would heal people. He wasn't just preaching. He was making the world better. He was changing the face of Philippi for which he was thrown into jail and mercilessly beaten. You know the story. It is the earthquake that opens the jail gate for Philip uh, and for Paul and Silas as they're singing hymns. In every step that he goes across Europe, he's going to be hounded. He's going to be harangued, but he's also going to win converts and he's going to give a new way of life. He's going to change the face of Europe. All of us in this room are here because Paul went to Europe and the gospel went to Europe and then Europe came to the Western Hemisphere. All of us are here from that one vision. Could Paul understand it? Could Silas understand it? Could any of us understand what God's going to do with your obedience? Where you go, could Faith Stewart imagine that these many years on, 100 years after she opened the shelter, that she'd be the subject to inspire the Church of God in Jamaica? But she's inspiring me, make no doubt about it. And the shelter is still open today, 100 years on. There are 80 girls in the shelter right now as I speak. They have not all been rescued in the way that Faith rescued them but they've all been rescued from the inevitable clutch of the syndicate of sex trafficking because the shelter has provided a place for these indigent and destitute girls so they are not sold into slavery. And as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the shelter, of the testimony of a woman who believed in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform her own life, but not just her holiness, but to make the world around her, even India, more holy, we will be calling at the convention in June for the church of God everywhere to join the fight against human trafficking as a cause we can all be a part of. And you can do it in Jamaica, and you can do it in the United States, and you can do it in India. You can do it anywhere. There are 30 million slaves in the United States. No, 30 million slaves in the world today. 250,000 of them are in the United States. Sexual slaves. How can it be? Because... When young, desperate children or young women allow themselves or are abducted or deceived into the company of bad criminal elements, 
Their papers are taken away, they're taken to a new country, and they have no legal recourse and can live only by obeying those who are their masters. It's real. And in the city of Indianapolis, near where I live, runaway teens are one of the great objects of that dark desire. The average age of prostitution in the United States today, when does it begin? 13 in the United States. Think of what it's like in Cambodia. Think of what it's like in India. Think of what it's like for the young girl in that mountain village up here who has no prospects and whose family is destitute and who's being invited to work as an attendant in a massage studio at Ocorreos. And I promise you, while some of those invitations may be legitimate, right here in this country, there are children who are being absconded into this human slavery. Are you aware that the United States government, which has passed strong legislation about this, had Jamaica on its tier two watch list of human trafficking? What this means is that the, the country is a breeding ground. Actually, the government of Jamaica has stood forward and just last year, Jamaica was taken off the watch list and moved into tier two, which is a much better place by the measure of the, of the issue. But I'm just illustrating that this is not far away and it's not just a story of an olden time. It's real. Now, you may not have the Holy Spirit causing you to dream dreams of intervene to rescue young girls. But I'm illustrating for you that it is not enough to sing about the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to have a testimony about the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit will be born in the way in which you are an agent of, of peace and patience and kindness and love and joy. And it's also born fruit in the way in which you are not only transformed, but you begin to transform the world around you. Because the Spirit of Jesus is making all things new. And the world is a dark and broken place that hell has stolen. And Jesus came to die that the world might be redeemed. And until he comes back, it is our privilege, it is our responsibility, it is our call, it is our heavenly mandate to be engaged in the redemption of the world for Jesus' sake, the transformation of souls and the transformation of the world in which we walk. Most everyone knows the history of World War II. And in that dark age, Hitler's Nazi armies marched across fortress Europe and held the whole of a continent in its grasp. The war was seen to have been lost. The United States was coming late in the game. The United Kingdom was on its knees. Russia was collapsing. There were no enemies that could take on Hitler. Japan was ravaging the Pacific theater. And it was conceived that the Allied armies would try with Herculean strength to land at Normandy on the French beaches and wrest Europe away from Hitler. That if that did not occur, the whole world would fall into a darkness. And so the day came on June 6, 1944, famously that D-Day, when the armies of the Allies invaded French Normandy and one by one, inch by inch, beach by beach, cliff by cliff, the Allies established a beachhead on the shores of Normandy that Hitler could not remove. On that day, on the day a week after the first landing, when it was clear that the Allies would not be removed from Normandy, the war's outcome was determined. Hitler still controlled Europe, 
but he could not win the war because once Normandy was taken and the Allies started pouring in, the war was over. It was just a matter of time. Some of the greatest battles of the war would follow. The Battle of the Bulge, the largest battle ever in human history, took place after that. But Hitler was doomed. Why do I tell you that? Because that's the age in which we live. Jesus Christ came into this world to establish the kingdom of God, and he took the beach at Normandy. And once he hung on the cross and came up from the grave, the outcome of the battle is sealed. It's over. The devil cannot win. He can still control this place. He can still control that place. He can still work his mischief. But he cannot win because Jesus has taken the beach at Normandy. And we are living in the age where we are now fighting. And you may fight the Battle of the Bulge. You may have to fight to cross the Rhine. You may have to get all the way to Hitler's bunker. It won't be easy. But you will win. But don't think. Don't think you can sit all dressed up in your pretty little churches and sing songs. Because that will not prevail. You better get fired up in your pretty little church. You better sing some songs that give you passion, but that's not enough. It better blow the wind of the Spirit in you out there. And my plea for the Church of God in Jamaica, as my plea will be to the Church of God in the United States this June, as my plea is to every place I go, and as long as I have a breath of life, surrender to Jesus and make your life worth something. Surrender to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to possess you and own you. Surrender to Jesus, let the Spirit possess you, and open your hearts and minds to dreams of Macedonia, to crossing to the other side of the lake, to going where God has appointed you to go. And never rest and never surrender. As long as God gives you the breath of life in this world. Until you have taken back something that hell has stolen. Inch by inch. Soul by soul. Child by child. Block by block. Town by town. Parish by parish. Island by island. Country by country, until at last our Lord comes back. And all will know that Jesus is Lord and we have been his own. At the last. A few years ago, it was my privilege to attend the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., the Presidential Prayer Breakfast. I've been twice, and this is a very interesting development in American history where in 1953, Dwight David Eisenhower, the genius of the D-Day invasion, became the president of the United States. Most people don't realize that Dwight Eisenhower's parents had become Jehovah Witnesses. They don't even salute the flag. They don't, they don't believe in any of that. They're pacifists. And here their son has become the D-Day Allied commander. Now he's the president of the United States. He would write that when he became the president, for all of the drama of World War II and all that he'd been through already, he said, when I became the president of the United States, I, I felt just completely overwhelmed by the magnitude of responsibility and the reality of the nuclear button that sits at my desk. He didn't know what to do and was not a man of faith, but he'd heard of one, and he called him up and asked him to visit him. That man's name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham went to the White House and sat with President Eisenhower, and then they played some golf, and they talked, and he invited him back again. Ultimately, Billy Graham gave President Eisenhower his own Bible with all of his notes written in it, and he led President Eisenhower to Jesus. 
Dwight David Eisenhower is the only president of the United States who was baptized in the White House. Baptized while he was in the White House. He went to a church, but he was baptized while he was the president. Well, in that same year, 1953, a group of senators and congressmen were meeting for a prayer meeting, and the president, thirsting for spiritual direction, called up the senators and said, could I come to your prayer meeting? And that's the beginning of the presidential prayer breakfast, which every year since 1953 has gathered together members of Congress and the president. No president ever misses it. The Congress is present. Every congressman can invite one person, and because I was friends with one of the members of the House, I was invited twice to go, and I went. As I went, well, I was just amazed by the whole experience. The first one I attended, Bill Clinton was president, and Mother Teresa was the speaker. I want to tell you this. Mother Teresa was about as tall as this podium. We were all so anxious to see her, and I was this close to the front right here. And Mother Teresa walked in, and we couldn't see her. And then she got behind the pulpit and was like this. And finally, they just carried it away because she, she couldn't be seen past a diminutive figure. A phenomenal speech she gave, which I want you to know, she made Jesus the subject. She said, when I see the dead and dying in the streets of Calcutta, I remember the words of my Lord. Insofar as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. So when I see these people, often who are, you know, with soiled clothes and in and, and very desperate conditions and filled with open sores, and I cradle them in my arms, she said. I look at them, and I see my Jesus. As part of the presidential prayer breakfast, you get to go to a dinner on the night before. And as I went to the dinner, which I couldn't choose who would be my seatmates, I sat at a table of ten. Each of the people at the table began to introduce themselves, and one man with a very elegant British accent began to speak. Each of us introduced us by name, what we did. My name is Jim Lyon. I'm a pastor in Anderson, Indiana. The next one to introduce himself, so on. And this guy says, uh, my name is, I can't remember his name, but let's call him John Brown. He said, I'm John Brown, and I'm the British Governor General of the British West Indies. Really? Well, that's kind of fascinating. Tell me about that. And so he says, well, I was a career officer in, in the British Foreign Service. I am a believer, and that's why I'm here at the breakfast. I'm so thankful for a chance to be present. And I worked in the British Foreign Office, and I never served abroad and was not an ambassador. But one day, the Prime Minister's office through the Foreign Secretary called me up in London and said, we'd like you to become the Governor General of the British West Indies. You have three days to decide. You must do so quickly. Because if you're to accept the post, you'll have to go to Buckingham Palace and receive the commission of the Queen. He went home and talked to his wife. They agreed to take it. He got all dressed up and was ready to go to Buckingham Palace and went for the day. He described how he had been an Englishman his whole life and he understood the royal family but never been close to anyone, never seen them up close or in person. He expected the Queen just to come in and nod her head and tap him on the shoulder with a sword or whatever she does, but... He was not expecting much of it, except he was interested to see her up close and personal, but he described a moment where he went to Buckingham Palace. The queen appeared, and as she came in, he stood there and, as a good British citizen, bowed his head. She came up to him and began to speak. She was very well briefed on him, knew about his family and his life, and she spoke to him in a very personal way. And then she said, and he paused, 
she spoke very directly, directly to me and said, I am asking you to be my governor general. I am asking you to represent me, not the British government, not the United Kingdom. I'm asking you to represent me in the British West Indies. And that will require you to be conscious of every gesture, every word, everything you say and everything you don't say. Every waking moment of your life, you must never forget you are representing me. He said he was taken aback by the personal nature of the Queen's approach, by the way in which the whole assignment was translated into this most intimate relationship. And he said, I suddenly was overcome by the knowledge for the first time that I am above the representative of the crown. I am the ambassador of Christ. As a believer, I suddenly began to understand that my role in life is to represent Jesus, to be Jesus, to be the body of Christ every place I am. And long after my commission from the queen ends, I will still be an ambassador for Christ. And I need to be certain that with every step I take, I place one foot in the footprint of Jesus who walks just ahead of me. Friends, Tonight, if you don't know that Jesus personally, don't leave this building until your heart cries out and you tell him, I want to know you, Jesus. Forgive me for all the ways I've failed and I admit I cannot and am completely inadequate to manage my life by myself, but I give myself to you such as it is and believe that you have died on the cross for me. Just say that in your prayer, in your chair. And if you know Jesus already, and you're not certain you're filled with the Holy Spirit, tonight, you ask the Holy Spirit to possess you. You just say, Lord, I'm an open vessel. And like Paul, I know I might be called to go somewhere that I've never imagined. I might be asked to do things that I can't see myself doing now. But I promise you, whatever it is, if you show me a heaven full of children's faces and call me to go to India and rescue girls from slave traders, I'll do it. If you call me to walk across the street and take a basket of fresh bread to my neighbor with whom I've not spoken yet and tell them Jesus loves them, I'll do it. But I will be yours. Fill me with your spirit. And if you've found Jesus and you're filled by the spirit, then tonight, ask God to give you a dream. Ask God to give you a vision of where in this world he wants you to be on the front lines to change the world for Jesus' sake. My heart is filled to overflowing with love for you in just two days. There is a heart and soul in this church on this island that has one mind. Thank you for having me this week. Godspeed.